Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. Where our topic today is the U.S. office market. If your company lead, uh, leases, owns, or invests in office space, or you're an advisor in the commercial real estate industry, you've certainly seen a changing office market. Well, today we'll get a look at the current market and what we might expect moving forward. Please welcome my first guest, Walter Page, Director of Research with the CoStar Group. Walter, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, Walter, to get us started, how did the U.S. office market sector perform in the first, first quarter related to uh, rates and uh, occupancy? It was a good quarter. It's been a good year. Uh, rents so far up 3.7% from one year ago. Net absorption is running at an annual rate of 74 million square feet, which is 20% higher than one year ago. And vacancy continues to decline at about a, a, a four-tenths of a point per year. We're right now at 11.9%. While the national trends are one thing, what we're seeing is a broadening base of the recovery. For example, out of our national coverage of 54 markets, 53 of those markets had positive net absorption for the past year. That's a six-market improvement from a year earlier. Rent growth is uh, expanding on nearly all markets. In fact, 50 out of 54 markets are now achieving positive rent growth. That's a vast improvement from just a couple years ago. And Fifteen of our markets now have vacancy rates that are less than 10%. And that's very important to investors since low vacancy rates uh, drive rent growth and drive value growth. So overall, it's a, it's a good time in the office market. Oh, that's good to hear. And uh, how about across the asset classes? Uh, is, that, uh, is A performing better than B and C? You know, what do you see there? Overall, we continue to see a flight to quality. Tenants, employees want to be in nice space. Although we're starting to see some shift in demand towards Class B space, with the volume of Class B space net absorption for the past two quarters matching Class A space. Now to be fair, Class B space, we have about 28% more of that than Class A space, so having Class A absorption matching Class B, Class A is still absorbing more on a percentage basis. So tenants still clearly want Class A space they're increasingly not finding what they're looking for, uh, which is driving some new office construction or shift in demand to Class B space. The other thing that we're seeing across the Class A space is that rents are up. Class A rents since the recession has ended have increased by 7.5%. Mm. Class B rents are up 5.7%. Class C rents up 4.1%. Uh, clearly that reflects a flight to quality. Now. Over a long period of time, we tend to see some substitution between the classes. So uh, most likely the long-run rent differentials between the classes will be uh, less. But at the early part of the recovery, Class A has clearly done better in terms of rent growth. Well, that's interesting. And those uh, rate increases, is that pretty significant uh, according to the trends you've seen in the past? Uh, significant, yes. I mean, uh, we have not seen uh, rental rate growth like this. I mean, we're at the highest point in rental rate growth across the, the markets um, by a long shot. And most of it is uh, loaded towards the, the end. And those were cumulative increases. Most of that has occurred over the past year, however. Okay. And what about the variations between central business district and suburban office properties, Walter? 
So the suburban market is achieving an absorption rate that is double the CBD market on a percentage basis. Uh, this is most likely due to the strength of the suburban um, industries. Uh, if you think about it, suburbs have a lot of the technology firms, energy firms, and healthcare firms, all doing pretty well. If you think about San Jose, for example, technology is in the suburbs. Apple is in the, in the suburbs. Apple is not in the downtown market. In contrast, CBD-dominated industries such as government and finance, they're just not growing as fast as, as those other industries. That's the reason why the suburban markets are um, having a higher rate of net absorption. Uh, now, while we're seeing higher rates of net absorption in the suburban markets, CBD rent growth is higher. 5.6% over the past year in the CBD market versus 3.1% increase for um, suburban markets. Now, this is somewhat being driven by over 11% gain in San Francisco and nearly a 7% gain in New York, but still uh, CBD rents are growing at a faster rate than the suburban rents. Yeah, I guess there's so much demand there and, and not much uh, product or new supply. And, and speaking of new supply, uh, Walter, you know, what do you see there? Is that is part of the reason for these rate increases, the lack of new supply, and is construction starting to ramp up? Uh, construction is definitely ramping up. Uh, in fact, in-process office construction is up by 15% from one year ago. We have now have 85 million square feet of in-process construction across the country in the major markets. At this point, new construction of office space that's in process is up by 77% from the low point in the recession. Now, it's isolated to a few markets, Houston, San Jose, San Francisco, Washington, and New York. Um, but it's starting to expand. Uh, recently, we've had new starts coming out of Seattle, Chicago, and other markets as increasingly tenants can't find what they're looking for. Now, what we have been seeing in terms of new construction, the first phase has tended to be a lot of build-to-suit activity, but we're increasingly starting to see speculative development. And, and to give you an example, in the San Francisco CBD, they had a 60% cumulative increase in rent since the recession ended, far and away above any other market in the country. That has supported 2.5 million square feet of new office construction now underway in San Francisco, much of it which is speculative. Now, in contrast, I would say two-thirds of the office markets have rents that are less than construction justification. Um, this has presented, prevented new construction from returning to these markets. So intense, until rents return to construction justification, or at least look like they will return to construction justification, uh, we're going to see a limited amount of construction coming out of uh, many of the smaller markets across the country. Okay, and we're talking with Walter Page with CoStar about the office market. And so, Walter, what do you expect moving forward if you look in your crystal ball, if you will? Uh, what do you expect for performance moving forward across the U.S.? So for the office sector, we like to say that it's in the second half of the market recovery. And it's the part that typically is more liked by investors. Um, in this second half, we expect increased rent growth, in the 3 to 5% range, and rising construction activities, and continued uh, vacancy declines, although we expect that to slow, uh, especially by 2016, as new construction deliveries uh, continue to ramp up. Since office has long-term leases, in, and many leases are below uh, market, as these leases roll to higher rates, we expect office value growth 
to marginally outperform the broader market of, let's say, apartment markets, and, uh, industrial, and, and retail. Uh, in addition, we expect to see uh, a continued shift in capital towards the office segment, especially towards those markets that are trading at a discount to previous peaks. Okay. And, Walter, where do you see some opportunities, either asset-wise or uh, geographically? Uh, in our view, the best investment opportunities are related to improving a building in some manner. We would typically call this value-add or opportunistic type of investing. For example, um, given that, you know, for example, now is a great time to take occupancy risk. Uh, it's easier to lease up a building when the occupancy rates are improving than when they're not. And since occupancy rates are improving, uh, it's, it's just a good time to do that. The other thing that we see is there's a wide pricing gap between uh, highly leased buildings and buildings that are not so highly leased. So the extent that you can buy th things on the cheap as such and sell them at an expensive price uh, because they're highly occupied, uh, that is the opportunity. The other opportunity that we see it's just buying uh, what I call basis place or good valued properties that are selling for less than replacement costs. Most cases, this is uh, focused on housing distress markets, such as Atlanta, Orange County, Florida, Phoenix, uh, and, and also many suburban markets, uh, close in suburban office markets. We, we see that these are trading at discounts to replacement costs, offering investors upside. Okay. Well, that sounds like some great opportunities. And, uh, Walter, we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to hear more from Walter Page, uh, visit uh, CoStarGroup.com. They have great coverage of the U.S. office market. In fact, all the uh, sectors, they've also picked up their multifamily coverage. So check them out. Well, I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. We'll have more on the U.S. office market. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate-related topics, check out our on-demand show podcast. There are recent shows on senior housing, hospitality, and the major sectors like retail, industrial, and multifamily. Just grab your phone, tablet, or computer, visit iTunes, or the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're exploring the U.S. office market. Please welcome my next guest, Calvin Schnoor. He is Senior Economist with NAREIT. Calvin, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me here. Well, we appreciate it. And uh, you guys do a great job uh, following the REITs and, and providing information on the REITs. And so how did office REITs perform in the first quarter? Office REITs had a darn good first quarter. Office REITs, their total return was up 11 and quarter percent. That's 11 and quarter percent just in the quarter. Um, that's mirroring some of the strong performance that we've seen in REITs overall. If you look at all REITs, their first quarter performance was up almost 10%, a little bit less than 10%. Now, that's 
good not just in uh, aggregate to overall terms, but in comparison to the S&P, where the total return was up uh, a bit less than 2%, one and three quarters percent, it was a really strong performance. Yeah, that's excellent. So when you look back at the, the trends over the last few years, um, the REITs have done well in the office, office sector REITs. Um, they, are they just ticking up a little bit more than the others right now? Is that what you see? Or? Office REITs have been, have been quite strong over the past couple of years. You know, it's important to understand one thing about REITs is that they do give a strong income return through their dividends. And that actually tripped up the sector as a whole in the middle of last year. When the Federal Reserve started talking about when they might taper and what their eventual exit from their current stimulative policy would be, uh, the REIT sector sold off quite a bit. REITs as a whole were down about five, you know, down several percentage points in the second quarter and third quarter because a lot of people looked at them and they said, well, they give a lot of income. They give a strong dividend yield. Uh, maybe they're like fixed income and fixed income is going to sell off because, uh, you know, bonds fall when interest rates rise. What the market wasn't paying attention to at the time was REITs also, they're not fixed income. Their income is based on the rents. And Walter was just talking earlier in your show that we're seeing strong rent growth across the board. Uh, he was talking about office REITs. We're seeing strong rent growth uh, across many sectors. And so what you're seeing in the first quarter is just a re reaffirmation that this strong rent growth and uh, improving prices of the buildings that they own is really boosting the REITs overall return. Okay. And as an economist, uh, you track a, a lot of things that affect the office market in particular, like, like jobs and, and the economic recovery. So, so what do you expect for the office sector uh, performance moving forward and how that might affect the office REITs? I wouldn't expect a rip-roaring start. We're going we're gonna to see continued moderate growth here. That's just reflecting the overall recovery, uh, the overall economic recovery. Office REITs, obviously, office Properties are driven by job growth, and one of the hallmarks of this economic recovery is the job growth has just been struggling coming along. But we are seeing a lot of improvement. What we're seeing now, once you discount the, the, the weather effects from the early winter, uh, midwinter this year, we're seeing job growth trending at 200,000 a month or, or maybe even stronger, and that's up quite a bit from 160,000 or so uh, a year or two ago. So we're seeing the job growth that's going to generate the, the need for square footage and the need for absorption. And as that brings rents down, or sorry, as that brings vacancy rates down, we're going to see more rent growth. So I'm optimistic that we're going to see not a fast acceleration, but rather we're in for a long, steady improvement in this sector. Okay. So that in turn should uh, help the office REITs uh, perform well. I mean, if you listen to, to, to Walter's idea that a lot of these uh, leases coming up, uh, when you look at the office market overall or under market, then we should see some good rate increases, and that should have helped uh, these uh, REITs, shouldn't it? That's right. And the office sector tends to have fairly long-term leases, so the rent rolls occur, occur fairly slowly. Uh, so that's another reason why you don't see it getting into your current rents fairly quickly. Of course, the stock market price of the REIT is looking forward saying, what is the rent growth going to be not just in 2014, but also 2015 and 2016. And right now, there's still a lot of vacancy in many markets. Uh, some markets are tightening up more than others, particularly in the, the CBD markets. Um, but as, as the vacancy rates come down more, landlords are going to have even more pricing power when they have the rent rollover. Uh, so again, the REIT performance is looking forward, not just for what we're expecting 
over the next quarter or the next year, but two or three years ahead, we're seeing clear sailing for the sector. Okay. And speaking of looking ahead, do you expect this low level of, of new supply to continue? And what effect might uh, new supply have on the market? You know, it's interesting. Walter was talking earlier how supply is ramping up. And I get a lot of questions, um, not just about office. We also talk about multifamily and apartments. And that's an area where there's more concern about the new supply. But you hear it in office as well. People are saying that the supply is up. And they say, Yo, what's, what's, what's your outlook here? Um, you have to keep in mind a, a longer-term perspective. The new supply, if we look, I'm going to look at a different measure. I'm an economist, so I, I follow different things than what Walter does. Rather than the starts or the square feet uh, that are under construction, if we look at the actual dollars spent, the, uh, the construction put in place on office buildings, um, it's up quite a bit. It, it's up 60% uh, from its trough in 2011. So you have seen a strong ramping up, but it's still 40% below its peak uh, in 2007. Uh, we've got a long way to go before we get a really strong market here. You know, I'm an economist a lot of times. Uh, hate, hate, to, hate to dig on my own profession, but people say, uh, how is the new supply? And it's like someone asks an economist, how's your family? And he says, compared to what? Well, the compared to what here is what's the level of new supply that we need given the size of the economy uh, the size of the employment base, uh, the size of the business base that needs office space. And that's continuing to grow. And we're going to need even more space than they're constructing right now. Okay. And are developers just cautious or are there other reasons for the uh, low levels of new supply? Developers are cautious, that's for sure. And, and that's not just developers. We see that. You look at business surveys, you look at any type of business. Uh, the, there are very few areas that are saying, we have uh, full speed ahead. So there is a lot of caution. Uh, another factor is there has not been a whole lot of new capital in the market. Um, you've seen uh, only this past six months or so a significant increase in bank lending for commercial real estate. Uh, the CMBS market has been providing financing, but most of that is still just to refinance the seven-year CMBS that were issued uh, during the boom period. You're not seeing a whole lot of new financing coming from the CMBS. Now REITs are another exception to this. Uh, REITs overall have access to the equity markets and they've actually raised record amounts of capital uh, the past two years. $76 billion in 2013 was a record amount. So they're bringing in new capital, uh, but it's, it's really not much compared to the overall, uh, and they're not doing the development. They're actually purchasing new, new buildings. As far as developers, you're not seeing a whole flood of new capital, but it's improving, it's improving. Okay. All right. Well, that, that's interesting. And, uh, and guys, if you want to know more about REITs and what's going on, uh, visit uh, REIT.com. Nareet does a, a great job. There's a lot of great information there. And Calvin, thanks for joining us today. We sure appreciate uh, you being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Well, thank you. And we're going to stay with us. We're going to have more on the U.S. office market. We're going to have some tips and strategies. We're also going to have a CPM uh, out of California. that's going some great tips on operations. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Florida International University. With FIU's Fast Track system, you can earn your master's in real estate in just 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUonline.com to learn more. That's FIUonline.com. 
Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Well, today we're exploring the U.S. office market. Please welcome my next guest, David Ford. David is a CPM. He's also VP of Property Management with Transwestern. David Ford, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Michael. I'm happy to be here. Well, David, the first thing I'd like to ask you is, is what are some of the major concerns for office owners and, and asset managers, investors today? Is sustainability uh, one of those concerns? Um, it's on the forefront here in California. I think we have uh, several indicators that are driving that. One of them is uh, AB 1103, which was passed in November 2007. Uh, this year, currently, all building owners over 50,000 feet are required to report into Energy Star all their uh, electricity, gas, and water consumption and setting that up in the Energy Star system. So. It's a way of every owner reporting their energy use. It's also going to be required to turn over that report for any sales going down the road. And also, as far as for increasing that uh, capability, they're also going to reduce that down to 10,000 feet buildings uh, starting in July. Well, that's interesting because uh, what sometimes starts in California ends up all over the country. Well, and, uh, you know, they're even raising the bar on that. We have uh, Title 24 kicking in uh, later this year. And this is going to be much more aggressive where they're going to be requiring dimmable lights on all south-facing exposures. Uh, even the task lighting in your workstations are now going to have to be connected through the energy management lighting system. Uh, they're really trying to drive uh, reducing energy costs, uh, lighting costs, by about 17% with this law mandated with a lot of LED lighting. Uh, it's going to. We're talking about increasing, increasing the cost for uh, tenant improvements, though, by anywhere the range is somewhere between 10 and 20 percent for this additional uh, wiring and control work that's going to be required under this Title 24 coming down the down the pike. Wow, that is significant. And uh, but I guess the saving grace is you do get some cost savings. And you know, what are some of the sustainable improvements that have the fastest return for uh, property owners today? Well, you know, clearly a lot of the PG&E had a lot of the rebates that were out there for many years. A lot of those have uh, expired. I think today everyone still goes back and looks at variable speed drives on any of their motor controls. Uh, LED lighting is the big drive right now. I think that the, you know, high cost, the barriers of entry are, are coming down. The cost of lighting is being reduced. And clearly the energy savings with the heat load on the LED lighting seems to be the, the real focus right now is for ways of saving energy in these office buildings. Okay. And we just heard from Walter Page, and uh, he said your, your market there in San Francisco is hot. Uh, what's going on there? Well, it's, you know, we actually are experiencing quite a new gold rush here in the Bay Area, and it seems like the mother load is coming through downtown San Francisco. Uh, you know, we've had about 15 quarters of strong demand you know, we're currently at about an 8% vacancy factor. Uh, we got rental rates that are in the $70 range, and, uh, you know, sales pricing now for Class A institutional product in downtown San Francisco is over $700 a foot. Now, when you talk about those kind of values, that's also driving a lot of development. We have over 3 million square feet of construction underway in San Francisco right now. There's 25 cranes uh, looking over the skyline. Uh, that's very exciting, but the other flip side of that is we actually have, out of that 3 million square feet, I would say 60% of that is already pre-leased. So as far as for the absorption, it looks like we're going to pretty much take status quo 
and we expect to fill most of this new construction before it's completed. Wow, that's good to see those birds in the sky, those uh, cranes, right? And uh, I want to ask you, you know, what what about trends in the marketplace? I mean, you see a lot of uh, build-outs, you see a lot of tenants using their space. What is an interesting trend that might surprise people? Well, what's unique about the San Francisco marketplace is it's, you know, it's more than the dot-com. It's really more the social media and the high-tech crowd. Uh, so we're now looking at going from an institutional back office type uh, layouts to now this more of a high tech use, which is they're really more looking at a volume than um, layout. So we're basically going into these institutional buildings and owners are spending up to $70 a foot just to open up the ceilings and take out the, the, the suspended ceiling, expose the HVAC and, and conduit in the ceilings, but at least then you have a 10 or 12 foot ceiling height. And then you're going to find these bench seating in everywhere with, uh, you know, you know, density up to about 100, 100 one, per, one per 100 square feet. Mm. Uh, the other addition that we're finding in our office buildings today, which goes with this new culture, is lots of dogs and cats coming to work. <laughs> uh, putting showers in every uh, office building and bike storage is required. So with this density, we have 8,000 apartments being built in San Francisco right now. So there's a lot of density that's increasing in um, not only in the office sector but in the housing sector and so we are going through some struggling pains there on you know trying to you know increase our the the flow of traffic and reduce the car count so everyone's required now to have uh, spots for their bikes in the buildings showers need to be there for the employees and then when they get there they're also showing up with their dogs and cats and, that, and, their, and a density that we haven't seen before. Well, David, thanks for joining us. For more from David, visit transwestern.net. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Real Crowd. Real Crowd lets you invest directly into shares of cash-flowing real estate with low investment minimums and the ease of investing online. Visit realcrowd.com slash radio. That's realcrowd.com slash radio. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We have some great shows coming up for you, including market updates and forecast on the major sectors. Don't miss a show of special interest to you. Sign up for a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're exploring the U.S. office market. Please welcome my next guest, Bob Stafford, Director, Internal Workplace Management Division at GSA. The U.S. General Services Administration handles the office space for all the federal government agencies. They are the largest user of office space in the U.S. Bob, welcome to the show. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Bob. We appreciate it. And uh, we hear that in the GSA headquarters in D.C. that you did away with the uh, cube farms and private offices. So so what is the feel and look of the space there? I think the majority of the space is uh, sort of an open benching workstation. Basically, you're right. We, we got rid of uh, about 20 years of legacy cube furniture and moved away from a, a, cork, a culture where leadership was ensconced in large offices, sort of away from the workforce, and we really sort of made a, a, a more of a general approach to the entire workplace throughout the building. Um, so we, we uh, built the space out in sort of a benching configuration. The workstations are roughly around 36 to 40 square feet per person. Um, but one of the important things we did as well is we provided a variety of different types of workspaces in the 
building. So when you're going from something where you're taking away, quote unquote, you know, people's cubes or their in individual space where they might have done work before, you have to provide them with a variety of workspaces throughout the building to be able to, to do things like have a quiet conversation with a colleague or, or meet uh, in sort of an open collaborative space with a, with a team in, um, in, for an impromptu meeting. So we really sort of uh, created a variety of workspaces throughout the building so that no matter what type of work people were doing, um, they could find a place in the building for them to do it. Well, talk to us some more about the efficiencies that you've created there. Sure. Um, you know, we uh, when we did the renovation of the building, we designed for a two-to-one sharing ratio for, for desks throughout the building. I mean, we moved away against, like I mentioned, we had 2,500 people in the building before, and we designed for moving 4,400 people into the building. So we designed for a two-to-one desk sharing ratio, um, along with, again, there's a variety of workspaces throughout the building. Um, and by the time we got around to actually moving people into the building, um, it was more like a 1.6 to 1 sharing ratio or something like that. But we have the capacity to go up to a 2 to 1 or even uh, as much as a 2.5 to 1 sharing ratio. Um, and that translates to about 141 usable square feet per person in the building, which is down from I think the previous number was more like around 240 square feet per person. Wow, that's interesting. So, so how do the users uh, reserve desks and things and conference rooms? Sure. So we went with a um, sort of off-the-shelf uh, hoteling system and, and uh, or you know a workplace workplace reservation system um, made by Agile Quest. It's called Onboard, and we made some um, internal modifications to it. Our version of that system is called Bookit. and basically it's a web-based system where um, all tenants in the building come into the building and reserve their workstation, up to five workstations or up to five reservations um, over the course of a two-week period, as well as any sort of conferencing space or teaming space that they need to reserve as well over the course of like two weeks or, or a month. That way they can plan to say, for instance, you know, and this is one of the great um, sort of innovations in this approach to, to, to our space, uh, on one day you might be teleworking, on another day you might be working in a certain part of the building, collaborating with a, a team from another uh, organization within GSA, and the following day you might want to sit somewhere else in order to get some headstand work done. So through this system you're able to do uh, do things like search for particular assets, like if you want a conference room with video teleconferencing ability, you can search for that, or if you want a workstation that is an adjustable height workstation, we have those in the building, you can do a search for that. So it really provides you, um, you know, that, again, that variety of workspaces allows you to tap into what's existing in the building and what you might need to be to uh, utilize on any given day. That's interesting. So so if I need a conference room uh, and I need it impromptu, how do I know it's available if it's been reserved or not? Interesting. So we, we uh, handle that two different ways. Um, our co The conference rooms uh, in our building are both reserved and some are un unreservable. So the reserved ones... Uh, especially in the fully renovated part of our building, we have um, it's a steel case product called uh, Room Wizard, which is mounted on the outside of the door and has and shows you on the screen all the reservations in that particular room for a given day. And that's all tied into that bucket system that I that I talked about. And on the outside of the room, if it's occupied at the time, it'll uh, have sort of a red light, so you can see that it is actually reserved. If you're looking all the way down the hall, you can see okay that that room is being utilized. If it's not reserved, um, it'll show up as green, and you can go to the screen and actually see, oh, okay, you know, I need a room for the next hour. It's not reserved for the next hour. You can make the reservation on the screen itself. 
but even for um, you know uh, meeting rooms that uh, are not reservable, basically all you have to do, and, we, and that's a, a was an important part of it too. We put put the vast majority of of them on that book it system, but the rest of them um, we did put a percentage of them uh, make them unreservable. So all you have to do is sort of look into a room. If it's not being used, you know you can pop your head in there for a meeting. You know anywhere between you know five minutes and two hours, um, so that you uh, you know can respond very quickly to hey we need to get together right away, meet on this certain uh, discussion point, and sort of bang that out without having to get into the system and actually make a reservation. Okay, and we're at the break here, but you also made those conference rooms where you can change the sizes for different groups of uh, people, right? Yeah, we do have some adjustable size uh, conference rooms, um, but I think the majority of them are fixed size, but we provide them, you know, anywhere from four-person team rooms all the way up to a 250-person conference room to, again, to try to provide that variety so that, you know, depending on what type of work you were doing um, or what type of meeting you wanted to have, there was a place in the building that you would be able to have it. All right. Well, great. We're going to take a short break. we get back more from Bob Stafford with GSA on the modern workspace. This is Michael Bull. I'm on the Commercial Real Estate Show with you. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404-832-8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. You're invited to send us commercial real estate questions. You can email them to info at com. Each business day, I answer a question on video. We post it to the Twitter account, Ask Michael Bull, and YouTube channel, Commercial Real Estate Show. Well, today we're talking about the office market. We have Bob Stafford with us with the U.S. GSA. And, Bob, we're talking about the shared spaces, and I think it's interesting that you you can accommodate up to two people per desk. So uh, what do they do with the picture of their wife and their uh, coffee cup and things? No, that's a great question, and we actually got that question a lot as we were preparing the tenants to move into the building. Um, you know, with 4,400 people are designed for 4,400 people being in the building, as you can imagine, providing personal space for all of those employees would take up quite a bit of uh, a real estate in the building. So we made the decision that we would give each uh, tenant in the building uh, an eight, basically a, a file drawer for their personal belongings, uh, roughly 18 by 18 by 12. Um, it is assigned specifically to them, and they can put whatever they want to put in there. They can store their laptop, they can store some personal files, they can store their running shoes, whatever they want to do. But that is basically the only personal space that we provided for them in the building, which really had people start to think, it required them to start to think about what do I need personally on a day-to-day basis to be able to get my work done. Um, you know, and some people do have pictures of their kids where they take them out of their personal storage, set them up on their workstation they have reserved for the day, and then put it back in their personal storage when they're when they're done for the day. But that is up to each individual to determine that. Um, but you know, but that was one of the decisions we made in order to try and control that space and the amount of um, sort of creep of personal stuff that tends to, you know, if you have a traditional office as I did before we started the process, I about eight file drawers full of stuff. And then when I started to transition to this new model, 
I realized that I needed basically none of that on a day-to-day basis to get my stuff done. Yeah, that's great. And this efficiency that you guys are creating could have significant uh, savings. And so how many federal leases are expiring in the next uh, few years or so? Yeah, through through FY16, we're looking at roughly 35% of our leases, or about 31% of our rentable square foot, um, expiring. That's about it's almost 3,000 leases through FY16. So if you can imagine, that's just it's a ton of space. It's a ton of work that we're going to have to work through. And we're working with our federal customers to basically right-size their inventory to make sure they're making the most efficient use of their space. So while it is a, a lot of work and that's a, an incredible um, you know, size of our, our real estate portfolio that we're going to have to work through, um, it also provides a, a lot of opportunity to um, utilize some of these uh, approaches to the workspace that we've taken at uh, our 1800F headquarters location um, and work with our clients to see how we might be able to change the way people think about the federal workplace. And what type of savings are you seeing? What are some examples? So for the, our 1800F consolidation uh, alone, we collapsed six leases uh, into our owned uh, headquarters building. That's saving us uh, about $24.4 million a year in rent, which is rent that is now going back into the federal building fund and, and funding GSA's mission of maintaining our federal properties uh, and providing federal workspace for our, for our customers. Um, and that's just the real estate savings. We're also saving roughly around $8 million a year in administrative costs. When you think about, you know, we collapse from six different locations, redundant services like security and supplies and administrative support and things of that nature have all been able to be reduced. So um, we're, we're t- you're talking a significant amount of, of taxpayer dollars being saved by sort of moving to this new way of thinking about the workplace. Well, Bob, I thank you for that. And the rest of the U.S. taxpayers, thank you for that. And thanks for being on the show today. We appreciate you being with us. But thank you very much for the opportunity, Michael. Thank you. And for more from GSA, visit GSA. Dot gov. Well, I have a question for you as a listener. Can you join us next week? Well, I hope so. We'll look into the wild and woolly world of retail and retail real estate. I'm Michael Bull. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Atlanta Office Liquidators, new and used furniture liquidators, France Media, publications and conferences, and Bull Realty Commercial Brokerage, a great place to do business. For more information on these companies or to access additional podcasts, videos, or blogs, visit commercialrealestateshow.com.